want you to remember that no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Welcome back to Man Cave Movie Reviews, episode 15. This is the podcast where we review the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. And today, in tribute to our men and women overseas and in this country, standing guard and keeping us all safe, we will be reviewing that classic 1970s movie called Patton, starring the magnificent George C. Scott and Carl Malden. And those are about the only two people in this movie that I can actually recognize. So I'm just going to mention those two, and that's about it. Uh, everybody else is, uh, you know, a lot of bit characters. Pretty much the entire German and American army is the um, Spanish army because back in the 1960s and 1970s, if you were going to film a movie, a World War II movie, you went to Spain because they had the terrain that you could pretty much use for, let's see, uh, Eastern Front, North Africa, France. It all worked. And you can really notice that in one scene when um, you see this uh, pen where all the American soldiers that had been captured at the Battle of Kasserine Pass, there isn't a blonde-haired guy among them. Everybody has uh, dark hair. So that must have been the Spanish army that got picked to be the, uh, the prisoners. So anyway, moving on to this uh, great movie. Like I said, starring George C. Scott, Carl Malden. George C. Scott obviously plays Patton, which is a role that I believe he was born for. And I want to kick it over to my um, co-host here, Jeff Pinky Ring Muncie. Steve, I came over here tonight to your home so you could see if I was as big a bastard as you think I am. <laughs> and, you, and you're right. <laughs> well, actually, you're not. You're not that big of a bastard. <laughs> you're a medium-sized bastard. And speaking of bastards, my other good and dear friend and co-host, Mark, you magnificent bastard, Slover. You know, Steve, I've learned a valuable lesson. If you're ever in a traffic jam caused by a jackass, pull out an ivory-handled revolver and just shoot the problem. It'll go away. (laughs) Oh, you know, I forgot about that part. But, you know, that scene there, they just got... They just, you don't remember that? I remember the track jam. I don't remember the revolver being pulled out. Oh, yes. Yeah, he stood oh, there. Remember, they got straight by. Oh, and that was the other part. This is the, this is the movie, too, where the, uh, the Spanish Air Force proudly uh, flew the only two uh, Hinkles that they owned, I think, in there. Because that's the only German plane you saw in the movie where the, uh, the Hinkle uh, was the... Uh, I, it, it, the 111, the fire bomber. Yeah. And uh, beautiful plane, wonderful plane. But these uh, had Rolls Royce engines in them. Yes. yes, and they were used in the Battle of Britain, the movie of the Battle of Britain, yes. as well as Spanish Me 109s. As you were saying, this was the place to go for World War II movies during you, this time you, period. Absolutely. You can thank Francisco Franco. <laughs> he was willing to take. And he is still money. dead, too. By the way, <laughs> he is still dead. Damn. I had money riding on. He's coming back. Nope, nope. He is still dead. <laughs> That's an obscure reference. Yes, it is. For those of you, for those of you Saturday Night Live folks, uh, you know, let us know if we got that one right. Anyway, back to this great movie. I have to admit, one of the things that I was really surprised about 
after doing some research and listening to some old audio tapes of basically it's like radio shows during World War II, was actually hearing George Patton talk for the first time. And he sounded nothing like George C. Scott. He actually had a very uh, high-pitched voice. Um, not not like a girly high-pitched voice, but it was, it was much higher. I mean, George C. Scott sounds like he's talking in gravel. She's got that real gravelly voice, but and Patton didn't sound anything like that. However, it still doesn't take away anything from the movie. I just think that he just nailed this part. Like I said, I think it was a part he was born for. I've seen him in a bunch of other movies, and nothing holds a candle to anything else he's done except this, which is probably why they gave him an Academy Award, which he turned down. And rightfully so. I mean, he deserved the Academy Award, and I was talking to like both of you at some point this week, that even if I was able to meet the real George S. Patton, I think I would look at him and say, you know what, you're, you're, you really don't act anything like, you know, George C. Scott, who to me is the real you know, George Patton. It's such a convincing role, and I love him at that role. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be exactly who the man was, but you believe the role. And he he is a true professional, and that was his point um, when he re- turned down the Academy Award, was, you know what, he's an actor. He's, this is a job. And he really didn't, he really wasn't a big award type of guy. And he took a lot of pride in this. And I think you could see it in the intensity and the amount of dedication that he put into this role. Um, you're right, Steve. It was, he was born for this role. And anything else, it, he's just, uh, it, it, he just doesn't really fit into any other role but this one. No, you're right. He inhabited this role. It, and it's interesting when you read some of the other sources uh, of the other actors that were considered for this role. I think Gregory Peck, maybe Bob Mitchum. Rod Steiger. Rod, Rod Steiger, Steiger turned one. it down and said yep. that was one of the biggest mistakes he ever I, I, the, You're right. This was made for George C. Scott. You but cannot imagine anybody else in this role. It may have been Rod Steiger's. He may have regretted it, but it's not a regret that the movie should have. Oh, no. So, okay, I'm sorry, Rod Steiger, this wasn't good for you. But of the five that were considered, they were good caliber actors. But George right. C. Scott was clearly mm-hmm. the one that should have, like you said, Mark, inhabited the role. This was he was born for this, and he could have just stopped after this and been, you know, crown king. Right. Oh, pretty much. And like I said, you look at I've got I've got my uh, I've got my patent picture on the other side, and if you could see it, and he's got that uh, that leather bomber jacket, and he's got his helmet on, and you see those scenes, uh, especially during the uh, uh, Battle of the Bulge campaign. It's him. It, it looks is. exactly like him. I can't even picture Mitchum or Steiger. I just don't even see Steiger. All I see him is Napoleon. Which I can't. Yeah, there's the role he inhabited yeah. in my mind. Yeah, and that's he just was it. Napoleon. Everybody has a role that they are made for, and once you once you nail that, mm-hmm. it, it, you can't go up from there. And you're right, Steiger did. I mean, when I see when I see him as Napoleon, any other time I see a portrayal of Napoleon, I go, you know, this, this isn't right. Right. This is not this is not Napoleon. Right. Mm-hmm. But Steiger, I mean, you this is what you think of Napoleon, which you know at some point we will have to do Waterloo. Two other two other people that are important to point out in this movie are Francis Ford Coppola, because mm-hmm. he wrote the screenplay, and then I told Steve earlier I'm gonna get you a Blade Runner callback. There's a there's an actor in this movie who also appears in Blade Runner. It's Patton's aide who gets killed at the Battle of El Guitar. Dick. I can't remember his last name. Dick Jensen? Yeah. He is the cop at the beginning of Blade Runner who gets shot in the opening scene. It's the same actor. Oh, my gosh. Yes, you're right. 
Remember the guy who wow. he said he's fine as long as he can. Yeah, as long as they don't unplug him. Yeah. That's, he's absolutely right. Same guy. When he says, uh, you know, tell me about uh, something. Your mother. Tell me about your mother. Well, I'll tell you about my mother. He just blows him out from under the table. That's right. Obscure callback. That's very obscure. That's a, that's outstanding. Not a Babylon 5 callback. Not a Babylon 5. It's you ain't Blade Runner. Get a cookie. Yeah, you ain't going to get oh, a ba- cookie. Thank you. You're welcome. There were, I, there were, this was way too old to have B5 references, oh, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. you may have gotten some old dudes or something that well, wasn't b5 but there's so. no one in here when you look at the imdb on this um you know usually they have the pictures of the actors right? yeah this movie's made 1970 right well so. the, uh, when, you, when you look at the list of the cast right there's like five people that have pictures yeah the rest <laughs> yeah. right they have names and credits but that's that's it there's that's no it. pictures because right. they haven't done anything else yeah. right and the last thing they did was maybe in 1998 or 71 a year <laughs> after this came out yeah, yeah. it was it, it, they were your stock kind of actors right. who fit the role Right. And they did a great job. I thought everybody in this movie did a spectacular job of playing roles. I never felt anybody was out of character or out, out of sync with what was going on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Everybody did a solid performance. You know, especially a lot of the exchanges between you know other generals. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the exchanges, the dialogue in this movie, which I think is very rich, and it goes back to who you wanted to point out, which was Francis Ford Coppola, who was co-writer of this. Right. And, and fired after a certain point uh, of writing most of this movie, if not all of it. And there was another writer that was uh, hired to kind of do some tweaking, but they basically went with Francis Ford Coppola's version. Um, the, the dialogue in this movie, I think, is is amazing. It is. It, 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 you know, it's not just the, the fiery dialogue that George C. Scott has. It's also just a lot of the side dialogue. It's smart. It's witty at times. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of love. And, and Francis Ford Coppola, well, he was he was fairly young at this Very time. Young. I mean, you know, not I mean, you know, not a pre-Godfather, pre-Godfather, yeah. and did a great job of putting this movie together. Yeah. The acting in this movie for a bunch of novices is some of the best I've seen. Right. And, and you make a great point about some of the scenes. My favorite scenes are not the battle scenes. They're not the fiery scenes where where Patton is losing his temper. It's those one-on-one interplays. You yep. know, the scene when they're grinding up to Sicily where he tells his one general to make an end run. Truscott, yeah. Truscott, and tell Lados, Lados, Tajiro Lados. Mm-hmm. And then the whole interplay with Bradley after that. Those scenes are some of the most effective. And, and they're just, again, they tie the movie together and they show you, I think they do a great job of showing you Patton, how complex a character Patton really is. This guy is a very complex individual, yeah. and you could have played him as a bloodthirsty. You know, it, it, this is the Vietnam War era. Yep, you could have played him as the bloodthirsty maniac. We had a lot of those movies coming out, but if you really watch this movie, you really understand that this guy is a romantic warrior, and he's very complex. I read his autobiography, or not autobiography, his biography by um, um, Carlos Diest, and that particular scene with. Truscott was was just this screaming match back and forth with Truscott and Pat because you know Truscott just knew that this whole thing was probably going to fail and he was I mean he was convinced that Pat was just telling him I'm just going to basically send a battalion off to their death because you want to make this grand rush I mean it was but the theme is he pulled it off and and think that there's one thing that that I always admired about Patton is that, yeah, he was in it for the glory. He was, uh, there was, there's a great line in the movie. And in fact, I think it was in that scene after, after the, uh, interchange with, uh, Patton and Truscott and Bradley was there. 
and Bradley said, you know, George, I do this job because I was trained to do it. You do this because you love it. And they're, and As they're, if that's a bad thing. And let's talk about that yeah. because Bradley was one of the historical advisors. And Bradley and Pat did not get along. And if you They read, did it first. They, had, they did, they it, did first. it first. Yes. And the movie does a good job of showing them when, uh, when Patton is his senior. Mm-hmm. Yes. They get along really well. But it's the point where Lucian and him are talking. It's, it's at that point where Bradley um, and Trescott and um, Patton are talking that it hits Bradley that Patton is really, a lot of this is for him, not for the good of the Army. Mm-hmm. It's for him. And, and that's what sours him. And you, I think uh, Carl Malden does a spectacular job of showing that it, you, you see that turn and you see him walk off stage. And right. after for the rest of the movie, there's a kind of a coldness until the very end, mm-hmm. where he buy you of, dinner. Buy you dinner. Here's the olive branch. You know, you're you know you've been relieved of your command. Here's my olive branch. Let's go right. to dinner. And you know, he even saves his life, basically. Well, you know, that that's that never happened. Right. right. In well, the movie it they, does. But yeah, yeah, in the movie it, it does, and in reality, should, right? But they're showing that. Yeah. They make he makes amends, right. even though for you know about a year and year and a half in war they well you know at least through the Eastern Front or for, through uh, through Europe they they were they were ice and they hadn't talked to each other it was mm-hmm. clear you know they you know they greet each other hello hi how you doing good seeing you there was a, there was a period of time there where he was um, in the ice box um, waiting for further orders and he never had any contact with Bradley in in the book which is just fascinating do you know what one of the biggest problems bradley had with Patton, and and you'll laugh when you if, if you don't know what this is you know what his biggest problem was his language because mm-hmm. Patton swore horribly oh. well, Patton you- swore all the time and bradley was like and it was like a religious thing with him I, I mean he wasn't a quaker or anything but he was some type of i don't remember what it was but he i guess when Patton would go off on these terrors you know, Bradley would always tell him, you know, do you really need to talk like that? And Patton would just look at him like, what? What, what are you talking, are you about? talking yeah. about? You, you know, this about? is, yeah, it's. And also Patton partly did it because of his high-pitched voice. Because of his high-pitched voice. He, he did it to, to make up for it. Yeah, he wanted to compensate for that. And, and part of it, too, was is that Patton was very much of an aggressive type of a general. Uh, he was always on the attack. Always, on, in fact, he. Marshall re- Ney. Yeah, I mean, he was just charge. like that. Yeah, it's just charge ahead. Right. Pat or Bradley was very much a lot like Montgomery. Bradley was very cautious. Bradley, you know, was he had to have all his pieces in a row before he was going to do anything. Where I think Patton just, it, it's it's almost like the guy had an instinct for the battlefield. It's almost like he knew what they were going to do, and he's like, I ain't worried about it. I know what I need to do, and he could deal with it. I would agree. And I am not a fan at all of MacArthur, but I think MacArthur and Patton both had an innate sense for how to shape a battle, yes. how to then command a battle. Yep. And they both displayed it differently, mm-hmm. but effectively. And also Patton made certain he was surrounded by people who understood his way, his war fighting techniques. Mm-hmm. Terry Allen, who commanded one of his armor divisions, mm-hmm. commander of his TAC air. These guys understood how he was going to fight. Mm-hmm. And he was not a sloppy Marshal Ney, we make that joke, charge straight ahead. And Ney wasn't sloppy either. Ney was a very confident corps commander. But he was very thoughtful about it. But he, you're right, he was very aggressive. And Bradley was just not cut of that cloth. You can see 
the difference between these guys like you can see like you can see chess players mm-hmm. there there are some chess players that can see 15 20 moves ahead there are some that can only see two to three moves ahead and Bradley was very methodical but Patton said you know what I, I can see from here to Berlin and yep. he was right yes but Bradley basically had to rein him in and say yeah you can do that if you had the logistics here to support you and you don't but he was he was a master at being able being able to, to to see what was in front of him and and see down the road. But when your butt's on the line and you are having to, yeah, as far as Bradley went, to answer for your mistakes, yeah, you can send the bulldog on ahead. You can say, you know what, run around the fence here, all yeah. right. But we got to manage the rest of the battlefield. But I wanted to just touch back on Patton. What I what I thought from this movie again after watching it this time was. As great of a man as he was, and as good of a general as he was, he had a lot of insecurities, and he was trying to overcome, or he was trying to compensate for them. For example, mm-hmm. going back to your, you know, the language, you know, he re- he recognized he had a high pitched voice, and it mm-hmm. it bothered him to the point that he felt that he had to compensate for that by basically being a vulgar man. And, and in this movie, you know, a lot of people don't like the GD word, mm-hmm. and to this mm-hmm. day, for I mean, because if you're a religious person, you understand, right? You know what what you're saying. You know, he used that with fluidity now i had this on blu-ray which by the way on blu-ray this is gorgeous all right mm. shot in 1970 gorgeous and we need to talk about the cinematography because it's stunning it yeah is, we'll get to that it is it is stunning. some of the best for 1969 1970 as a connection i have the i have jurassic park okay that has been transferred over to dvd blu-ray and it is terrible and it is 25 years later than this movie, which was transferred over to DVD and Blu-ray perfectly. I mean, they enhanced this so well. I mean, it, it is just night and day the difference between something that was shot in 1970 or 69 and what was shot in 95 and the care that they took to restore this. Um, because the cinematography in this and the camera work oh. was was amazing. And they shot this, and I can't remember what it's called. It's called, uh, there was some sort of special camera that they used for this movie and one other movie, The Bible. Uh, by Dino De Laurentiis. It was, uh, oh, something 150. Den- Dimension Denison or Dimension 150? I think I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah. it was only used a couple of times. Basically, they shot it on a 150-degree camera lens. Right. And, you know, and, and they were trying to, I think, experiment transition uh, the photography with this. And, but there was just, but there was some logistics with it. And it only really lasted for a couple of movies, this being one of them. And it, I think it, it it worked well, but there was just such problems with it, they just kind of abandoned it. Um, and this movie, the camera work and the setting and the sets that they designed for this were fantastic. I just, th- this picture, this movie may be one of the best shot movies. And somebody took a lot of time and effort to design basic offices, basic homes, and there were a lot of different sets in this movie. I, I was amazed for, it was about, what was it, about two and a, two and a half hour, two, two and, and a half four, hour five movie, minute yeah. movie? Yeah. For 1970, Easy. that was a really long movie. But the care and the time and the number of different sets that they had in this movie is pretty impressive. And because we train, you know, we go from basically uh, Tunisia all the way to London and back and all the way in the middle. So you've got scenery, and most of it was shot in Spain, as you all pointed right. out. But the t- the kind the care and effort they took in this movie you know it it goes back to Conan there was a lot of love and nobody took any shortcuts in this right. movie right. and and one of the areas that I I want to touch on when we talked about about the the shooting of this movie was 
because this is a pet peeve of mine in most movies that are shot, is winter scenes are usually shot on sound stages. This was not shot on a sound stage. They went out, and wherever they shot this, this was shot during the winter. And to my mind, the scenes of the uh, relief and the march on Bastogne are the, are the best shot. There's something stark about those scenes, especially the ones when the prayer, he's reading the, the prayer, and the night assault, and they're mo- advancing in the night, and you see that one soldier get hit and fall. The photography, the settings, the starkness of the winter, it's very effective in telling that story. And I, I got to give them credit, you're right, they spared no expense on doing justice to all of their set design in the external and internal shots, and they're well done. And it, that's the thing that I just take away from watching this movie is just why can't people do this today? It's just so magnificently shot. Uh, I'll tell you why, because we rely too much on special effects. We rely too much on the whole CGI thing. I think it's made, uh, to some extent, directors kind of lazy in terms of there's so much stuff we can do now with CGI. You don't need to do those kind of things. Well said. I, I think that's it. I, that's just my opinion. No, I, um, would, I would agree. I mean, I think uh, like when we talked about in our first podcast, you know, with Conan, you know, all the extras that you would see in some of those scenes. I mean, those were real live people. And if right. you listen to the commentary, they said, you know, we had, you know, at one point we had like, you know, fifteen, sixteen hundred people out there. You know, you do all that now, and they even said, even uh, Amelia said, he goes, yeah, today I do it all CGI, and he even said it, it looked like crap. Right. I. Well, and you see that with the Battle of El Guitar. Those are in yes. Yeah. This is a military biography, so if yeah. you're looking for Sherman tanks, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to find them. Yeah. And I have no problem with the M60s, the Chaffees, the yeah. M48s, but there are a lot of them out there. Yeah, there's a ton if of them. If someone said we're doing this as an homage to Patton and we're going to put Pattons in the movie, there you go. Then I'm fine with it because I'm, I understand that you're not going to find maybe a bunch of Shermans left over. You know, Frank was going to have running around. Apparently, he's going to have up to date technology in 1970, but. I was watching the longest, not I'm sorry, a bridge too far today, mm-hmm. and that's what struck me while I was watching the bridge too far. When the paratroopers are coming in, I'm thinking, this is not CGI. This is hundreds yeah. of guys jumping out of planes, and they're getting this shot now, mm-hmm. and it looks perfect. Yep. Now today, you'd have three or four guys in the near ground parachuting, and then you'd have everybody else being CGI as mm-hmm. far right. away as you could see. That is the thing, and, and, and it's not to sit there and say that uh, they need to go back and do it the way they did back then. However, you don't get the kind of cinematography in the movies today that you see in movies like Patton or The Longest Day or even A Bridge Too Far. You I'll just don't see it anymore. I'll give you another one. is Spartacus. Yeah, Sp- At oh, the yeah, end of absolutely. Spartacus where you yeah. see the Roman legions yeah. and you see the rebel army. And the Roman legions, all these guys just flash their shields. That's all extras. Yeah. Sure, you can do it with CGI, but you're right; it will still look like CGI. Mm-hmm. And that's just it. I mean, there's, and again, we're not we're we're not knocking you know today's movies in that sense. You're just what we're really trying to get at is I am. You're well, yeah, but the thing of it is, you're seeing a lost art. But that's that, just, that's why that, I'm knocking it. Yeah. Is you can't. It, but you, you can't might, you can't afford it today. You couldn't afford to do that today. Well, I, I wonder if somebody could do a cost analysis on how much it would cost for actual real people that want to go out and dress up for the day to do this. And a lot of extras do it for either nothing or for cheap. 
or how much do you have to spend in time and effort on CGI and computer technology to get the effect that you want. But the authenticity has been is is gone. You know, when you see these old movies, you're like, somebody took time and effort to actually stage this event. Now you go, you you say to yourself, you're looking for the CGI. Right. And it mm-hmm. to me it cheapens the movie. Well, and so I am knocking a well, lot of today's because yeah. it is going back to what you said, Steve. Yeah. It's laziness is what it is because we can do this instead of having 5,000 people come and dress up, which is a logistical nightmare. I appreciate that because you got to provide lunch for everybody, right? And I think that's it. I think when you start looking you gotta at feed them. you got to feed them, you got to pay them. There's If it's Zulu, you got to give them a, a wristwatch. A wristwatch, yeah. That if well, you, you look, did. that if you look close enough, you'll I, see one. You didn't I know did, that? They, I didn't know. That's that. how they yeah. paid all the Zulus. Did, I had no watch. idea. Well, yeah. they also paid them in cattle too. That's right. They paid them in cattle, which they wanted I, more than money. I have to go talk to their agents. Yeah. yeah. Wristwatches. Well, they weren't in. They weren't in the uh, screenwriters guild that's or right. the actors they, guild yeah, or whatever get, it is. They didn't get, and they didn't get union benefits. You know what? Well, they, they should get back. Okay. Mm-hmm. The CGI Somebody problem. Somebody should do a class action lawsuit. There you the go. The CGI problem really manifests now. itself too in the most recent World War II movie, which I took my son to see, which was Red Tails, it about the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry, but P-51s are not X-wing fighters. <laughs> There is some great stuff with CGI. Don't get me wrong. You're not going to find an ME-262. But the problem is we can't adhere to the laws of physics or or when is enough too much. Right. And, and we fall into this trap with CGI all the time. Right. You're absolutely right. And I, know, and I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen that in other stuff where some other movies where it's CGI and, they just, and, and, and the plane's doing things that, no, it can't do that. It's not designed to do that. Once. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Once. (laughs) Yep. Well, to play devil's advocate, it it is not necessarily the filmmaker's fault. It's actually the audience's fault because they're demanding bigger, better. Sure. It's sort of like our 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 hotels or not hotel our hospital situations that we have today. What you really need is you need a room with four walls and some up-to-date medical equipment and a competent person that can take care of you. But what we demand now is we demand a gorgeous hospital with wood grain and artwork, and we want to have every sort of craftmatic adjustable bed and TV, everything at our disposal. Mm -hmm. That's what we want for the 24-hour stay we're going to be there. Same thing with movies. We want the biggest bang for our buck as we can get. We want the most eye-popping special effects um, you know, look at the Avengers. That's all that was. And it works for the Avengers. It, and it works. Because it, it's a comic book movie. It is a comic movie. That's what the audience wants. Right. That's what they got. And they were very happy with it. Mm-hmm. But that's what we're demanding. And so each movie that comes out, each successive movie, is having to top the next, you know, the previous right. one, so we can keep that juice going for the audience. And I think that's one reason why, you know, let's harken back to what we're doing here with this movie review. A num- most of the movies that we've reviewed to date, and I think a lot of the movies we're going to review, are all those types of movies that did not have CGI or had very limited CGI. We're trying to introduce people back to the movies that they probably didn't grow up with or didn't see and are not familiar with so you can understand how this was done and why it was done so well and in many ways why it makes the director so much more effective and the producer because... These two people have to bring hundreds, if not thousands, of people together and get it in one take. With CGI, if I blow it, it's no big deal. I can fix it. 
that is what makes directors like Coppola and people like him so much more fascinating to me. Right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, what I want to do is I want to jump over real quick to, um, uh, to trivia because there's some pretty fascinating stuff here. And uh, the first one here would be um, uh, George C. Scott did win an Academy Award for this and famously refused to accept it, claiming that the competition between actors was unfair and a meat parade, which I kind of thought was interesting. You know, I want to say two things about that, okay? George C. Scott had a way with words, okay? <laughs> and in this movie, his portrayal of Patton has a fantastic way with words. If you read his quotes, and some of Patton's quotes, I mean, I, I, I want to plaster my classroom with because but then i i want to i won't but i want to he has some of the some of the best one sentence quotes for motivation for perspective it it is amazing how he can quickly come up and on the fly with some of these you know anti some of these quotes that are so appropriate for the situation and are so poignant you know in the movie i found myself it was almost like even the the way they designed the movie is they would pause after he would make one of these points for you to ponder and, and consider what he just said because it was it was so valid. And the other thing was I really liked throughout the movie how he, I mean, he was really a military historian. We need to talk about how he was obsessed with reincarnation, mm-hmm. that he felt that he, I think, six times right. had basically been reincarnated six times throughout history, and, and, he, and he remembers vividly battles right. or yes. you know time periods. You know, and, and I loved how throughout the movie they would give his historical perspective or reflection upon a certain scene. Right. And I loved how they did that throughout the movie. And I think this is one of those movies that has... We, we talk a lot about endings and how a lot of the times the movie falls off at the end. At the end, he's doing another historical reflection. And the way that they end this movie, it may be one of the most perfect ways a movie has ever ended. It, and it's, again, when you look at the movie, the way Patton enters the movie... Mm-hmm. Sirens blaring, I'm coming to rescue this, to I'm walking the dog and walking off with the quote about all glory is fleeting. Yep. That just sends chills up my back. You're right. It is the perfect ending, and the camera's looking up at him as he's walking off. Mm -hmm. It's brilliant. Yeah, it it really is. It really is. This is my favorite trivia of of the movie. Um, According to his co-star, Carl Malden, George C. Scott caused a shooting delay by immersing himself in a ping-pong tournament against a world champion table tennis player. Scott, who was in full costume and makeup, kept losing to the champ, yet he was determined to win at least one set, even if they had to stand there playing the entire night. And you know what? Only he could probably get away with it, too. I love that. I love the idea that George C. Scott was a ping-pong player. I just I think that's awesome. And I wonder what the table tennis champ was doing there. It's like, where did this guy come from? Yeah, where... Was what? he, like, working on the set or something? Key grip. <laughs> best boy? Yeah, was he best boy? Was he gaffer? Yeah, gaffer. Gaffer. Was he the dolly grip? I don't know. Oh, my God. Was he a matte paint? And can you just... You wonder one... What I really want to know is, which uniform was he in? Was he in the full metal... <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or his leather. Or his leather. Which his bomber jacket. Oh. Uh, oh, you know what? It just hit me. Do you remember the scene? It was the scene when he is standing in the hotel. Or not his hotel, but he was in his room. And he 
It's when his uh, when George, his um, driver and aide, comes in to let him know that uh, Bradley got the um, command the, uh, to, of, you know, Overlord. To, uh, of Overlord. It, it, it didn't hit me until I was watching the movie. I started laughing. Do you see the robe he was wearing? It was right out of Kelly's Heroes. Yeah. It was the same damn robe. It was like that big red robe. I thought it was gray. Was it gray? I, I thought, thought it was, it was gray red. Robe. Yeah, I thought he had I, a red robe. Maybe I thought he had a red robe on at one in one scene. There was a scene where he had a red he robe a, on, and I remember started laughing because I thought, "Oh my god, it's I'm Archie. fairly sure it was gray, but okay. there it was, was during this scene that I thought of Carol O'Connor. Yes, I was like, was was it, was Carol O'Connor channeling George C. Scott? I think he was, and I yes. really think oh, that what that yeah that absolutely. whole because that movie what came out three four years a couple later. years later yeah, yeah. seventy three seventy four. Because, oh yeah. I, I mean, you know, it is. You, you, it's a good. It, regardless, Steve, it is a good connection, and it's it's got to be tied in somehow. All right, if we could just resurrect, you know, George C. Scott and uh, Carol O'Connor, dueling paths. Du- <laughs> you know, I mean, even if it wasn't, it it had the same image. Yes. You're right, Steve. Now, yeah. Carol O'Connor only got a Jeep because Patton got a white Scout car. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. now, uh, th- Carol O'Connor only rates a Jeep. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. I got a medal here in the Jeep yeah, for you. <laughs> no, yeah. And he didn't have a dog. And he oh. didn't have a dog. Oh, wait till the end. That <laughs> was that was another great scene when he's like he goes uh, with his uh, with Cogner. And you know what's funny too, and that's one interesting thing too about um, this movie is when he gets his new aide after Dick Jensen gets killed. Uh, he gets uh, Colonel Cogman. And Codman kind of almost, when you first see him in a movie, almost just comes up as a complete brown-nosing... Staff toady. Staff toady. But you know <laughs> what? He actually had a very... He was actually in the First World War. Very distinguished career. You had an image of him in this movie of just this, again, staff toady, but had a very distinguished career during the First World War. I want to talk about when Dick died. Mm-hmm. That the one thing this movie does of another fantastic job of in portraying um, George C. Scott... On one hand, you have him as this passionate, driven man who knew what he wanted to do. He had a job to do. He was, and he was going to do it, and he was going to do it to the best of his ability. He was a very capable person. He pissed off a lot of people because he spoke what he thought. He spoke honestly. He spoke the truth, and it rubbed people the wrong way because he there was no filter. No. But what is great about this movie is I love how during during three scenes. There were three key scenes in this movie. When his senior aide died. Yes. The burial scene. The burial scene where he where he lightly touches his head. Okay? Yeah. And the when he is in the um, in the hospital. He's touring the hospital. And the guy with the uh, the respirator on basically, you know, he, he leans down, you know, after he pins the purple heart on his pillow. And, and whispers. There, there is at least a minute of silence in the whole, in that movie. There is not a sound. He is sending to battle and to die the thing that he loves. And when he sees it, he's not afraid to go and visit it, and to ex- and experience death. And when, but when he does, he is moved. You know, this this just hard nosed, crusty man. He's touching people on the head. He's kissing them. He's you know he's showing just just the sincere compassion. I couldn't imagine them doing a better job of showing all the sides to Patton in this movie. And again, that's what this movie is. It's a military biography, and, and you nailed it, Jeff. It's not glamorizing anything. It is trying, and I think it does a very good job of trying to demonstrate a complex individual and how complex 
and how intelligent most of our generals are. You know, a free society does does create strengths and weaknesses in its generals. But when you look at people like Patton or Lee or Grant or Bradley or Eisenhower, these guys are very complex. Yes. And this movie demonstrates it very well. And it's one of those movies you can go in to play War Pig and watch a War Pig movie. Mm. Or you can really watch this movie for what it is. It does not present itself that way. It expects you to be smart enough to figure it out. And if you're not smart enough to figure it out, that's okay too. You can just enjoy it for what it is. Because you're right. It is a, um, this is basically a biography of, of the man. It's not a war movie. No. There's, as I think Mark might have pointed out at the beginning, there's really hardly any war scenes in this movie. You, you see a lot of actually aftermath of war scenes right. in this movie. You saw one, you, at the Battle of Alcatara, you saw yeah. one good battle. That was really it. And that was um, it. You know, you know Castorine Pass, you know, you saw the remnants of what happened. Right. And, and I, I like the focus of the movie. The movie doesn't try to tell his entire story. It doesn't go from, you know, you know West Point or... Right. Uh, it, yeah. it, it just, it, it focuses st- it, on... The war. Uh, when he co- basically, when he comes into the war, which mm-hmm. is in Tunisia, to the end of the European theater of operation. And that's really it. It's short in focus. Mm-hmm. There's a story they're trying to tell. And I think they do a good job of telling the story. And you take the journey with him. Um, you're seeing it really through his eyes, his highs and his lows. Uh, I think they do a good job of trying to portray when he is um, you know, taken out of command. Mm-hmm. And, and you're led to believe, like he was for a while, that it was because of his actions. Well, no, he was really being used as diversion. And, you know, if you're kept in the dark for a while, well, that's good. I know, in history, I don't know if he was actually kept really in the dark like they portray him in the movie. Uh, not really. Not no. according to the book. I mean, he was actually pretty... I mean, he understood why he was pulled out. And then when they told him about that, his reaction was the complete opposite of what the movie right. portrayed. He was actually was like... I'm all for this. He he loved it. He loved the idea. But he knew eventually he was going to get back in. I guess we should talk about the hospital slapping scene now. Yeah. Where, yes. Where, and I think they overplayed that in the movie. Well. I mean, it was an important part, but I think they they overplayed. And then they, they also they also periscoped it. There were two slapping scenes. And they didn't they didn't explain some of the backstory to it. They didn't explain right. the backstory. That he'd been up for 48 hours beforehand. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, even great men like him. You know, su- suffer fatigue, and sure. you know, and and lose you know focus to a point. Um, they didn't point out that he, on his own accord, came back. You know, within whatever twenty four hours later, apologized to the to the man. And I, I do think they did a fairly good job of showing the ridicule that he received in the media, though. Oh yeah. Which mm-hmm. again, for something as simple as what he did, which you know, you had thought he had pulled out a revolver, put it up the guy's head, and forced him back to the front lines. Wait, weren't the Russians and Germans doing that? Oh, well, let's, you know, again, oh, it, it goes to show how far back our media goes to, right. you know, to, to blacklist people for things that really, you know what, this is war. And as people have said, war is hell. This crunchy granola stuff of you slap a coward and get him back in the line, you know what, somebody's got to die. And if it's your day to die, then it's your day to die. Mm-hmm. It really is, you know, as small potatoes. And, you know, there, were, there was a letter writing campaign. You know, we love George Patton. You know, even the guy's father wrote a letter saying, you know, please don't don't take George out of the... Out of the you know, mm-hmm. not that Eisenhower ever had any plans of. He's like, yeah, right. look, dumb move. Go say you're sorry. But I'm not I'm not taking my, you know, my, my war horse out of the, right. out of right. the battle. I'm right. going to save him for, you know, that moment where I need him. Right. 
And that's a good point. And, and one of the things that um, the book that I read by um, uh, Carlos Diaz really uh, portrayed was Patton would get very, and his aides would talk about, Patton would get very emotional after going through a hospital. They said when he would go in there, talk to the troops and everything like that, they said when he left, he literally would be in tears crying. And it was very hard to imagine. Uh, it was very difficult to imagine a guy like that, you know, crying. But it is. I mean, he would be. He would become very upset over it. He would be. Uh, and I think that is. It's like you know, you you walk in there, you see these guys in, in the in the horrible condition that they're in. Particularly like that one guy. Like he says, you see that guy, and he's basically wrapped up like a mummy with a respirator on. And then the next thing he walks over, there's a guy in his you know in clean fatigue sitting on the edge of a bunk, and and he's crying. And that's what's like, Pat's like, what's wrong with you? And right. it's my nerves, sir. Wrong and thing this to is, say. That, that, you know what, that was a say. wrong thing to say. And you got an idea of that in the very beginning when he came into North Africa, when he went into the hospital. And he said, I understand that there's three men in here with self-inflicted wounds. Get them out of here. And he said, get them out of here. And the doctor goes, well, one's developed a bad infection. I don't give a damn if he dies. Get them out of here. They don't deserve to be in the same room as men who've been shot in combat. Right. And that was his attitude. And, and the backstory to that was yeah. he had just learned, like the day before, that this was a prevalent problem in yeah. Friedenhall's outfit. Yeah. That a Fried- lot of guys yeah. were shooting themselves to get out. Not a lot, yeah. but enough that this yeah. was starting to become a problem. Well, Friedenhall was, was just useless from, from he, Jump Street. He was, he yeah. was one of your pre-war army yeah. guys who... Yeah. He was pre-war. He got a shot, and it, he blew it. Yeah, and I, and I'll tell you what. I'm going to just do a little bit of a little bit of a history rant here, and uh, for the folks, because I think this is important for people to understand that when we got into this war early on, Kasserine, um, when we had the Battle of Kasserine Pass, this is the very first time that we went up against the German army. Bear in mind, at this point, the German army had been driven about pretty much halfway across Africa or North Africa by Montgomery. We were pretty much fighting a retreating army, okay? So we go in there. We're fresh, and we're ready to go. Full of piss and vinegar. Full of piss and vinegar, and Rommel basically smacked the living crap out of us, and he smacked us hard, and we lost. Let's put it this way. What we lost in about, what, three days? is about half of what we've lost in 10 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. We got our ass beat, and we got it beat bad. And it was it was a very humiliating defeat for the very first time that we went up against the Germans. It was very humiliating for us. And it was probably the best thing that happened to us. And Well, it got Friedenhall out. Well, and it also taught us a lesson. Yeah. We're not as good as we think we are. And we never were. I mean, that was just it. The last time we'd been in a war was World War One, and that was, you know, 20 years earlier. And then, again, after World War One, we immediately demobilized, went back down to the hardly any kind of an army that we had. 36th largest. 36th largest. I mean, just so you know, folks, when we got into the war, by the time we entered in the war, our army was about, actually, Poland had a bigger army than us, and arguably better well-equipped. We, we had what? Maybe a corps? Probably. We had about a half a million. Yeah. We had about half a million guys. And but then keep in mind, they were scattered from China to the Philippines. Right. And the best guys were in the Philippines. Right. The, be- the veteran troops were in the Philippines. We had nothing. That we lost. And that was the thing that we were concerned about is, we're not ready for this. We knew that this was coming. We're not ready. And it's going to take millions of men. But when you look at the numbers, I mean, it really is staggering, you know, how many 
I mean, in any given battle, you know, and you see the count in the movie. They're, they're you know, the German oh, army is keeping count of how many people <laughs> right. that Patton has yeah. has basically wounded, killed, or is missing because of his action. Right. And you're, you know, it, this is this is a short period of time. And you yeah. know, at one point it was thirty-eight thousand. Yeah. Just, I mean, just from that little front that he was working on. Mm-hmm. This wasn't talking about the rest. I mean, this was not talking about the whole European theater of operation. It was such a large scale, we just, we can't comprehend well, it now. The German army was on the Eastern Front, thank God. About 70% of it. Thank God. Well, yeah. Uh, and what <laughs> wasn't there, you know, it was down south waiting for Patton to come up through, you know, Czechoslovakia or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and they had, you know, what they had. You know, they had an SS division and a bunch of, you know, young boys and old men, you know, in Normandy. And that mm-hmm. was it. Well, and that, that was one of those historical things that I understand why they did it in the movie that I kind of chuckle at now. Where he, he's commenting after the scene where the tankers run out of gas and they get in that fight with the German column right. at night. And the right. next day he goes, I know they're defeated because they're using carts. horses and carts yeah. and wagons. The German army was never fully mobilized. We were the only fully mobilized army. Fully motorized army, I should say. They used horses and carts and wagons from the get-go right. throughout the war. Yeah, pretty much. But I understand what they're trying to do in that, right. in that scene. They're trying to paint, make a very simple statement. Right. Well, and it, and, at the, and it's that scene there that also they are pointing out another reference of his back to one of his you know prior right. lives. You know that was it was a scene that was designed for him to speak to. You know, I remember I was a you know alive. I don't think that was during. I don't think it was. He was referring to the when he was Napoleon. Yeah, it was Napoleon. Was it was the winter okay. march. It was the, the winter. That's right. It was the winter Moscow. march. It was the, the winter march. Moscow. The retreat from Russia. That he was referring the to the carts, yep. you know, and you know, again, you 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 know, it is all it was all designed for George C. Scott to have that great dialogue. Uh, you know, I, I go back to the writing. You know, I, I, there's a reason Francis Ford Coppola won an Academy Award for the writing. Yes, you know, they really mopped up at the Academy Awards in this six film. Six or seven Academy yeah, Awards. Yeah, it was cinematography, yeah. screenplay, director, actor. I, I think the sound score. Yeah. Also got it. Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, and the music is. Oh, cool. yeah. And that, it, thank you. Because I have to do the soundtrack uh, or this. Uh, yeah. That was definitely on the list. That's why I'm here. That's why you're there, Jeff. Uh, one of the greatest soundtracks. The music uh, in this is There's fantastic. There's not a lot of music. There's not a lot of music, but it's it's really good. It, it's it, iconic. Yes. And it's very iconic. That, there's yes. a lot of movies. Thank you. Yeah. One of my favorite, The Burbs, pays an homage to this. Does it really? really? Oh, yes. But they pay homage to it in uh, that movie. And the Burbs. The yeah. Burbs. Uh, and that's been in several movies. I, you know what? It, I think it was also in Mr. Mom. At the end. Yes, it was. At the Schooner Tuna commercial at the end where they're closing <laughs> yes, out. you're right. The it was. Schooner oh, my tuna. gosh. They have you this, remembered that. I'm I impressed. Another great, great movie. One of Michael Keaton's best. It may be Michael Keaton's best. No, Johnny best. Dangerously. Uh, oh come on! You it's a close second. Cl- close second. We got to do that one. You no good son of a bench. <laughs> <laughs> you farging asshole. My mom hit me once. 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 I saw him in Disney World, by the way. You told me that. Joe yeah. Piscopo. Yeah. You know, with his wife. Hung me on, on, ice, on, on a yeah. meat hook. You know what? Once. He he had a career just long enough, by the way. About fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah about, and that's all he needed. That was it. Done. What has he done since? I have no idea. It doesn't uh, matter. He, he Bali's did. commercials. Oh wait, that was the eighties. Yeah, I was gonna say. Does it? No, nope, sure won't. Because I don't want Piscopo coming over here. I don't know if he's still on steroids or not. <laughs> the guy can still kick my ass. 
All right, you know, we're going to go on to sound clips. And, um, clips? Yeah, clips. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, oh, oh. Brother, what are we drinking? Since oh, we're all together holy tonight. Holy cow, we've got to do that. We're Did we mention that yet? We're Not way yet. behind schedule here. Schedule. We're way behind schedule. Oh, yes, we're all behind schedule. This is, this is a special night, Steve, isn't it? It is a special night. Why do I feel like my voice is echoing? Echo, <laughs> echo. Because you're hearing it off the speaker. Oh, that's why. It's a special night, Steve. You want to tell us the, uh, the listeners what we're doing? Well, actually, the listeners, uh, we're all here in the, uh, in the uh, man cave at my house uh our good and dear friend uh marky magnus ambassador slover went and brought i read your book i read your book i read your book brought, write my book yeah he brought he brought beer for us he, we've got four growlers from that uh fantastic brewery called rock bottom um yes Thank i do God. i do genuflect when i walk in the front door and uh <laughs> Spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch. You, you got it. Them all. You got it. Steve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I walk in. I genuflect, and uh, they pour you porter. They, yeah. The one bartender understands. The, everybody else still looks at me oddly, but that's okay. Uh, oh, the we, guy. He has an eye for you. Well, God, can you blame him? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. So we have we have right now we have the rock bottom coal. Sexy. We've got a porter, which I, I like. How, I like how he. Uh, Wrote Porter on the uh, top of the lid, as in Sydney. As in Sydney Portier. Portier. Yeah, I guess that's the French Porter. Oh, Sydney Portier. <laughs> it did. He typed it Portier. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of Portier. It's po- kind of a little Portier going. Portier going. So we got a Kolsch. We've got the Porter, which, uh, by the way, folks, is excellent. It Belgian is really white. good. We've got a Belgian white. And, yeah, you and, crack and we gotta, I gotta crack the IPA next. I've gotta, I gotta knock this cold shot. Now I got, uh oh, here we go. Is this, your, is this your script over here? Somebody's throwing down the thunder. That no, that's from last week. Oh, that's from last week. Yeah. So yes, if you have not been to Rock Bottom, I had a script a and chain. I lost it, and I thought, well, we'll just do see the pants thing here today. I'm so. sorry, what? No. See the what? See the pants. Ah, thank you. It, it, rock Bottom, for a chain, very good beer, and very good food. Yep. And they have their own brewmasters on site. So Award-winning brewmasters. Award winning. Oh, yes. Their beer is always Their good. Their beer is fine. It's, it's perfectly it's, fine. It's some, of the best beer you're, it's some of the best beer you're going to get in a microbrewery. Clearly. Yeah. For a chain microbrewery. Oh, absolutely. Impressive. And damn good food. Yep. And yeah. some cute waitresses. Granite City has some good beer. I know yeah. you know you, you prefer Rock Bottom over Granite City, but for a chain, it's pretty good. I like Granite City's good. food better, but their beer is okay compared to Rock Bottom. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree um, with Mark on that. I put a second rock bottom. It's still good. It's still worth going and traveling oh, there for. absolutely. All right, we're going to do clip one. Uh, one of my, uh, it's a favorite scene. This is when Patton uh, is first coming into North Africa. And uh, they weren't expecting him when he when he was coming in. And this is just kind of a funny scene when he's, he just left the radio room and he's walking down the hallway and uh, you, you hear a little bit of a scuffle, so we're going to play that one now. Who the hell's kicking me in the butt? Oh, sorry. Uh, sir. What were you doing down there, soldier? Trying to get some sleep, sir. Uh, get back down there, son. You're the only son of a bitch in this headquarters knows what he's trying to do. I love that. I, I just, because everybody's standing there like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. He's the only honest guy there. Yeah, trying to was. get some sleep. Yeah, I'm just trying to get some sleep. It's like, what, what are you doing here? Um, love that scene. That's a, one of my favorite ones there. Um, Man, because you expected, you almost expected George C. Scott to just go completely, you know, apeshit on him, but he didn't. It's one of those scenes. He does a fantastic job of looking like he is. I mean, his the grimace on his face, 
is he he looks like he's disgusted at what he sees. You know, the, the disheveled men, um, just undisciplined. You know, he's walking through and just he looks pissed off. And his staff is following right behind him. Like, you know, I mean, like, you know, they realize that there's... Ties on, helmets. Yep. Uh, yeah, everything's, but, everything's on. You know, and, and, and when he comes down to breakfast, you know, the, you know, he's like, you know, breakfast, you know, you know, it'll be open from, you know, 6.30, 6.45, and, yep. then, and then you're closing it. What? Well, I mean, just, you know, it was just, you know, they, they, they didn't realize what kind of army they had signed up for once Patton joined. Right. Exactly. And, and the only honest guy, the one honest man. He didn't have a problem with it because he gave him an honest answer. The only one, the only, only one here that knows what he wants to do. Yeah. Yep. The only son of a bitch that knows what he wants to do here. So, all right. Uh, I like this one here. This is uh, this is actually during the uh, right towards the end of the Battle of Alcatar, where uh, it's it's an iconic line from the movie where he refers to his uh, counterpart at the time, uh, Erwin Rommel. Rommel. You magnificent bastard, I read your book! It's just such a great scene because of he was so excited at the fact that he was actually able to nail his nemesis right there. I think that was just it. It was the just the only problem is he fought Von Arnhem. Yeah, well, I think the only book Rommel wrote was infantry attacks. Yeah. But it sounds good. It was. It was yeah. the infantry and attack, and I, I, I noticed that too, and I first saw that, I'm like, wait a minute, that wasn't his book. He wrote the other one. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, they, they took a few liberties, but it was basically the same. It was pretty much the same concept. Yeah, great line. Yeah. You know, right. in between the guy sleeping and that and the Battle of El Guitar, there's one scene that just sticks out in my head of the only other people who know what they're doing in, in that whole army when he first gets there are the three little kids who come up to him when he comes outside. <laughs> oh, and they salute salute him, and salutes And then yeah. he salutes them, and they march along with him. It's like... These three are the only three that know what's going on here. Well, it's a great scene. It's a throwaway scene. One of my favorite movies, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the air supremacy scene. Oh. Where the uh, RAF commander come yep. in, comes in. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, says, and I understand there's been a big misunderstanding, and, you know, I just want to let you know that we do have air supremacy. And Patton's like, no. No, no, we don't. You know, we, we've got some problems. We got some holes, and I don't really appreciate you know you saying you know you know saying that I'm blaming you know the Air Corps for our failures, and you know, and then they get into this little back and forth, which I think is great, right? Right. And and then you know here come the Hinkles over, yeah. And you know just you know you just know straight the entire cab, you yeah. know just you know they're as they're diving under the tables, and there is some great situational humor yeah. and just snarkiness in this movie yeah. where they're diving underneath the table and he says, I believe we were just discussing air supremacy. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> just, How did you plan that, General? <laughs> I don't know, but I like to find those two pilots and pin metals on those sons of bitches. Well, it's funny you said that, Mark, because we have this right here. Oh, my gosh. How the devil did you manage to stage that? I don't know. But if I could find the Nazi son of bitches that are flying those things, I'd give them each a medal. Just, yeah, that nails the humor of the movie. Yeah, it does. I, I wanted to ask you guys if you can if you can remember that RAF. I don't know. If, if Air Marshal. Air Marshal. Air Marshal. Yeah. If you remember the actor, I don't know if you remember what he sounds like, but his voice is very reminiscent of the Russian uh, diplomat that was in the Hunt for Red October. That was wor- yes. that talked to the Secretary of Defense who played Armistead in Gettysburg. Secretary no, of Defense, but yes. I don't think 
Yeah, that's... the Secretary of Defense played Armistead and Gettysburg. No, you're right about that. I don't think that's him, though. But they do sound The, the voice like... sounds an awful it's lot alike. Him. Okay. It's but it, not him. But it does because it would have been 20 years later, and, and if he would have aged 20 years, he would. I would have thought I thought he would look that old as he does in The Hunt for October. But the sa- his the voice, voice. Yeah. is very similar. Okay. I, I just want to see if you what you guys thought. You know who I think that is? The guy that played... Maybe I'll have to go back and look. It's been a long time, but I could swear that the Russian that played the ambassador in that movie was the guy that played the uh, South African ambassador in, in Lethal Weapon 2. Lethal Weapon 2. He might have been. May have been. I'm going to have to go back and look. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right there. He put on a few more pounds for yeah. Lethal Weapon 2, and it was a few but I thought, you know, if this was 1970, for October yeah, was about 1988, 89, somewhere around Late there. Late 80s. Late mm-hmm. 80s. Uh, I thought 20 years would have been the right age, but they sounded... Very similar, Very similar, but that British accent—it really doesn't add much to the podcast. But I just wanted to point it out. Absolutely, it makes you feel better. <laughs> Not really. I just want to point it out. Um, Actually, I did want to know. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna play this one here. This is—I'm gonna take this one kind of out of uh, out of the order. It is actually one of my favorite clips because, in in fact, it's it's one of my favorite scenes. It's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It is the scene after Patton had just got done talking to Beetle Smith. Um, Beetle had told him, "It's pretty much in Marshall's hands. You know, we'll, we'll let you. We'll let you know if you're actually going to have anything resembling a career uh, after this is over." There's this scene, and they're like in this long hallway. It's like a very ornate hallway, and it's just him and George, uh, his driver and aide. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this whole thing where Patton is just, "Why is this happening to me? I didn't do anything wrong." It's like I, I need to be able to fulfill my destiny. This has to be like an act of God that's keeping you know that that that's doing this. Because he feels that this is the moment he was put on. He this is the moment that he was put on this yes. right reincarnated for this point in moment in time. Yeah, and it's escaping him. Right, and it's killing him. And this is and I'll tell you what. There's I love the way that scene was filmed because part of it was shot from a very long distance where you just see him and George standing there. And then, and then they do kind of a, not so much of a close-up, but where, you know, they kind of zoom in a little closer. You get the isolation that he's feeling. The isolation. Yeah, yeah and excellent. it's cold. It's yeah. a it's very, very distant Great point. Yeah. Great point. And I like this clip because this is, this is classic George C. Scott. This is just him just channeling something. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and play that. The last great opportunity of a lifetime, an entire world at war, and I'm left out of it. God will not permit this to happen. I am going to be allowed to fulfill my destiny. So, uh, last sound clip. Patton is sitting with the Russians at the end of the war. They're having a little dinner party. They've got the uh, the Russian high kick dancer guys that are just uh, you know on their way to Vegas. On their way to Vegas, and they're dancing on his table, and he's just sitting one there night just, only. Yeah, he's Don't just. Don't you love one of his aides who takes the caviar, put the caviar down? <laughs> oh yeah, there's yeah. a seat where they're passing the caviar around. Everybody else waves it off. One of his aides takes it, and Patton just it, looks at him. With like eyes that could melt ice. Well, he kind of like ta- puts he's, it back. Yeah, well, no, he doesn't put it back. He kind of like puts it under the table and drops it or something. It's a great scene because Ru- because Patton hates the Russians. He doesn't like them at all. And at the end of the uh, the at the end of the dancing thing and everything like that, uh, the uh, appears to be the political officer, commissar. Yes, the Zampolit. 
Yeah, so the uh, Zampolite comes up with the uh, Russian general and says, uh, uh, General Patton, uh, you know, General, uh, you know, Russian name. Insert your own Russian name here. Something that ends with Ski or Kov or, you know, we'd like to have a drink with you to celebrate the German defeat. And this is George Patton's response. Excuse me, sir. General Katkov would like to know whether you will join him to drink to the surrender of Germany. My compliments to the general. Please inform him that I do not care to drink with him or any other Russian son of a bitch. Sir, I, I cannot tell the general that. You tell him that. There's the Russian general's just standing there smiling. And that's just the great part, because the Russian general's just standing there. He can't speak English, so he has no idea what the hell they're saying. I love that in the movies, where there's a translator <laughs> and, and something terse is being said, and they're just smiling because they have no idea what's going on. And, and they get the news, and you see the, you know, the, the, the frow. And yeah, the reaction. The reaction. And I, I love that trope. Yep. Yep, and it works. Yep. Every time. Yeah, it never gets dull. But overall, I think this was, I think this was one of the better movies from the 70s, particular about World War II, even though it wasn't a war movie, it was a biography. It still really uh, is one of my favorite World War II era movies. Love this one. I think what Francis Ford Coppola and his co-writer did, as far as trying to create a, a balanced story that shared the, as Mark pointed out, uh, all of the, you know, George, George Patton was a very complicated person. And trying to take all the stories that he was able to read and the research and put it into a nice cohesive story. Sure, some liberties were taken, maybe some things were taken out of context, but he really, I think, captured the essence of who George Patton was and got that time period as right as he could and was trying to tell a a, a good story. I'm struggling to find anything that's much better. Yeah, and it, I think that what it did was as it's an excellent primer into who and what Patton was, and it drove a lot of people to... Um, Learn more about Patton, which I think that that gives credit to a movie. It, it it did an excellent job of that, and it did it. It did it in a way that paid respect to the individual and to the men who fought, but also just created a damn fine piece of film. It it, it is it is put together on every level so well. That it just it never gets old. You you never and you always find something new to appreciate about it. Because there's a lot to appreciate in the two hours and forty minutes that this movie is being on the screen. And it doesn't yeah. feel like two hours and forty minutes. It really doesn't. No, no. It, it's a fast-paced movie because it's a fast-paced movie. But there are scenes that even during the lulls is, you know, George C. Scott is chewing the scenery and in his dialogue again, it is so rich. And everything has such a great point to it, um, and the cinematography, which we've talked about, it, mm-hmm. everything flows together almost seamlessly. Um, and, and you over you overlook the, you know, the accuracies of you know, the military hardware. That's, you know, you, you accept it for what it is. Um, but all of the actors, as amateurish and novices they were, and I mean that as in far as far as experience, you don't have the same number of top actors like you do with um, 
a bridge too far. Here you just have some some people that have that are taking the, their acting job serious to make this one piece and everybody in this movie I think does a great job. Mm -hmm. The cinematography is fantastic. The soundtrack to this movie complements what you see on the screen yep. so very well. Mm -hmm. it, it's subtle. There's not there's not big grandiose um, pieces. Uh, it, it, it's simple, but it's very effective. And the directorship of George C. Scott, and I don't even know, I, I want to see if George, as the director, did anything, or if he just turned George C. Scott loose. George C. Scott clearly deserved the Academy Award for this, and I appreciate him for turning it down, too. And, and the other thing I really appreciate is they did not flinch, they did not back off, and the Rating Association understood this uh, because they could show historical precedent that this, this was the way the man was, about the language. The language is salty. It's very salty, and it was filmed in 1970. But it was accurate. Yeah. If you read about him, if you hear his speeches, and that really would have ruined the movie if they had pulled back on that aspect of the dialogue as well. And I think that that resonates as part of the character because you see him ripping off it's almost shakespearean the way he can use profanities right. in, in one scene and then in another scene these tender inner interchanges with wounded soldiers where he is he is a very considerate and genteel man and, and it, it 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 would not have worked any other way right i agree very good so from a uh, man cave movie review um rating we will go with uh Jeff, uh, pinky, pinky ring. Pinky ring. Do you know why I called you that? Because of his pinky ring. Yeah, because they they show that close up. I was kind of surprised he had this. So that was a great at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. You know, George C. Scott did not want this to be the, be the beginning of the movie because he yeah. didn't want to have to live up to <laughs> this. Yeah. The, the the what he was going to be delivering. Right. And, and so they said no, it won't be. It'll be the intermission part because the movie was so long. And he's like, okay, well, I'll do this. And, you know, it's very iconic. And mm -hmm. actually, this is, that's the scene. The very beginning of the movie is the reason that Francis Ford Coppola was fired from writing this. Because they did not, they thought that this was just the craziest idea was to have an actor up there giving this monologue in front of a giant American flag in a theater. And it ended up being, A, the iconic part of this movie. And oh, B what they ended up going with anyway, even though they fired him for it. And he talks about that in some interviews. But as far as um, this movie goes, I, as I stated earlier, you're going to find, you're hard-pressed to find a better movie during this time period that is so well put together yeah. as this movie. Um, and, and it works on, you know, and every, every, it, it, we all take this back to Conan. That movie was so well done because all they were not lazy all the parts fit together so right. well yep i'm giving this a nine okay uh mark you magnificent bastard slover what do you think it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking and i've got to give it a nine as well it, it does have to compress some facts it does have to take some liberties but it never creates fiction it only has to adjust for the reality of what we're trying to accomplish which is show a military biography of a very complex individual great great movie very good very good um i have to agree with my compatriots this is one of my favorite movies i am a very big Patton fan um as 
uh, Jeff and Mark know, I actually have a picture of Pat hanging up in my man cave down here, although they can't see it right now. It's on the other side of the wall. But I am a huge uh, fan of him. I've uh, uh, read a couple of books on him. Uh, the definitive work is by uh, Carlos Diest uh, called Patton, and it's, uh, it's a great book. The movie, like uh, Jeff and Mark said, I think is very well done. Cinematography is just top-notch, especially for that time. Holds up today. Uh, in fact, as we discussed, even makes movies today look kind of crappy by comparison just because of how well this movie is shot. Um, very happy with this one, and I'm going to give it a 9, too. It is a must-see. If you are very, if you are at all interested in learning about what type of man that George Patton was, this is the movie to get. And it's a great introduction into learning more about the war in, on the Western Front. Yep. And him as an individual. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, folks, that's it for Man Cave Movie Review for the Memorial Day weekend. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, next week, we are going to be reviewing a movie by request from one of our dedicated and loyal listeners. Annie, this one's for you. We're going to be doing the mission. Yes, we're going to watch this great Robert De Niro movie that none of us have seen. We're going to watch it anyway because you asked for it, so you're going to get it. So if other listeners have recommendations, if shoot you, them to us. Yeah, if you've got recommendations out there uh, of something that uh, you want to hear or you don't think we've seen, because we've probably seen quite a bit. Uh, being that we're old and all but give us a shout uh, let us know uh, make comment on the uh, the website drop us an email send us a tweet and the website is www.mancavemoviereview.com or on on iTunes at mancave all one word yes yeah, mancave all one word movie review right mancave movie review yes and um, give us a rating we'd appreciate it give us some love and not just a rating, but if you're going to give us a rating, go ahead and uh, give us a, uh, um, a comment about why you're giving us the rating. You know, even if it's a one, tell us why. But, uh, you know, if it's a five, definitely tell us. Elaborate. Embellish. Pontificate, if you will. All right, folks, that's it for us tonight. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we look forward to having you visit us next week. So until then, this is me, your host, Steve Michaels saying adieu with a good and dear friend, Jeff Pinky Ring Muncie. Your name's not Steve. It's Stevie. <laughs> oh, man. I got, that's like the second time in a row I've gotten spanked here. Uh, go see the movie. You'll understand the dog reference. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. Wow. I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm even afraid to even do, Bring it. Bring far. the heat, brother. All right, my other good and dear friend. Mark, you magnificent bastard, slower. You know, Jeff, I know I'm a prima donna. <laughs> the problem I have with Michaels is he's a prima donna too, and the son of a bitch won't admit it. I'm out. I'm done. That's it, folks. We love you, man.
All right, welcome back to Man Cave Movie Reviews, episode 15. This is the podcast where we review and watch, and you, you're already screwing it up. You know, this is bad. Right? You're, you're Why? Why what? not? I'm happy. <laughs> He's happy. Happy. Well, I'm glad you're happy. Now i got to start all over again. Welcome back to Man Cave Movie Reviews, episode 15, the podcast where we review the... <laughs> I do. I'm gonna have to get the. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I might have to get a sneeze shield. All right, folks. Uh, in three, two, one. All right. So anyway, this first clip. This is a scene when. Um, my God. The microphone. Yeah, that's like it. only your second I, beer and you're dropping. I drop it my microphone. <laughs> you know, why don't you hold it by that stem part there? Because the stem part comes off. Well, then just take the. You know, Oops, just. You know, well, why don't you just take microphone. that? I like it like this. You like that part? Here's what I can do. Oh, God, I'm going to hear your heart What is beating. it, a lavalier mic? Am I hitting my, my hairy chest? Wow. Lavalier. Uh, yeah, it's a lavalier. It's a lavalier. All right. Have you been pinned? I've been pinned. I'm going to pin you in a second here. 